You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And once they've maybe scammed enough people and you know, collected enough funds, they just basically pull the ripcord and you know the domain, the site, everything just disappears. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Nick Prococo, who is CSO at Kraken, joins us to talk about crypto scams. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories this week, we have a good bit of follow-up here. You want to kick things off for us? Sure. I want to give an update on my son. His bank refunded him the entire amount of money that was stolen from his account. Oh, excellent. So uh, I asked if he got a picture, if they sent him a picture of the person that took it from the ATM. He says, I don't want to see that. I'm like, I want to see it. (laughs) But uh, he did not get a picture. Okay. Uh, So if listeners were sitting out there going, whatever happened to Joe's son? He's been made whole. That's good. It is. It is. Uh, Sean T. writes in to say, thank you for putting together this great podcast. I listen to every episode and have told all of my friends about it. It's very nice. Everybody should do that. (laughs) Uh, As you both often talk, many people do not like talking about falling for scams because they feel stupid and embarrassed. I am interested in seeing if the increased sophistication of AI scams will increase the number of people willing to talk about being scammed. Mm. If AI scams become so effective, people may not be embarrassed for falling for them. I could see a thought process along the lines of computers can beat world chess masters, solve the greatest questions in the universe, and do all of it faster than ever. Of course they can make something that anyone would fall for. I think this is a good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. And um, one thing this reminded me of was how uh, large organizations, when they're faced with some kind of security breach, they'll Mm -hmm. they'll usually— say in the press release, this was a sophisticated <laughs> nation-state actor. There's not much we could have done. Yeah. You know? So you sort of call on this, uh, I don't know, <laughs> higher technical power that mere mortals could not possibly defend against. Right. And it might be the case uh, that does increase the people people reporting these incidences. Yeah. I, I And I think it, it would something that people just need to really work on is removing the shame from it. And I think as we've talked about here— I think that's a bigger here, issue. Yeah, but but as we've talked about here, I think you can kind of preload that with your friends and family by reminding them that there's right. no shame no in shame this. In you know, if, if I think about, you know, I would talk about my, my elderly father regularly, and I have said to him, there is no shame if anything like this happens to you. Don't be embarrassed. I want to know. I need to know. Right. That's the best way we can help you. Yep. So planting that seed, I think, is really important and will help spread the word. I would agree. Yeah. Uh, We had a listener write in who uh, asked to be anonymous. Mm -hmm. They said, hi, Dave and Joe. I thought our experience with corporate ID theft might be appropriate for your podcast. Someone or some group uses our company name and address to promote business lending. Mm. Prospective borrowers find our corporate number in Google searches to verify it's legitimate and I've been receiving around one to two calls a week for months. They've created a fake account on LinkedIn. 
A few of the callers say they're using a Gmail account. Their loan was quickly approved, and they were asked to wire $2,200 to cover fees to an account in New York. Another person, a real estate broker, said the scammer is active on a Facebook forum for real estate agents and promoting hard money loans. She'd seen the fake account on LinkedIn, where he has a post for loans. Our company is involved in finance, but we're not a lender. I suppose the LinkedIn account enables the ability to message that guy. Our company is, in fact, being sued by one of the victims of this scam. Which is amazing to me. Yeah. Uh, The listener writes and says, I submitted a fake account report to LinkedIn a while ago, but nothing happened. Then a few weeks ago, I learned about a potential better way to get LinkedIn's attention by emailing them at abuse at LinkedIn.com. I sent attachments, including non-public information, verifying that we're the owners and received written responses from a senior consultant, LinkedIn member safety and recovery. At this time, the fake account is still present. And then there's an update that says the account has been taken down now. Our case seems straightforward and easy for LinkedIn staff to investigate and determine the merit of our report. It seems to show a lack of responsibility and concern for public safety among major platforms. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. I, I will I'll say it. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. That it's maddening how many times we've said here that uh, if you can't do something at scale, then perhaps you shouldn't do that thing. Correct. I agree with that one hundred percent. Yeah, and uh, I say perhaps more regulation is or is in order. And I'll use the analogy of someone saying, "I'm sorry, but in order to turn a profit, there's simply no way we can operate at scale without <laughs> dumping our toxic waste in that river." <laughs> right. Right. I mean, we wouldn't. We would not stand for that. We do not stand for that. So, why do we stand for that in the the tech world? Why do we free them of the responsibility for oversight and, and uh, you know keeping members safe uh, when in other environments, we, we wouldn't stand for that. Right. Somehow we give te- big tech companies a pass. Yeah, I, and I, I don't get that. The there is This is something that LinkedIn is culpable for uh, mm-hmm. in some way. You know, mm-hmm. the fact that this company is being sued by a person who was scammed, presumably on LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, the very first thing I would do if I were the, the, uh, the listener's business is uh, – talk to my insurance company, my liability insurance company, and say, hey, they found this on LinkedIn and have them talk to LinkedIn about, about suing them. Right. Um, because they didn't take the appropriate action to do that. I mean, they, I don't know. Insurance companies tend to scare. They have a lot of lawyers. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this would be a good question for uh, our friendly neighborhood lawyer, Ben Yellen, yes. my co-host on Caveat, which is, you know, does a platform like LinkedIn, are they hiding behind Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act? I suspect that's part of it. Mm-hmm. It's part of what gives them a pass on things like that. They can raise their hands and say, or throw their hands up and say, we're merely the platform. Right, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, so perhaps there's some uh, regulatory reform would be appropriate in that area as well. Of course, And the flip side of this, of course, is that um, these organizations would not be able to provide these things or may not be able to provide these things for free right. or for the low prices they do at scale if they had to hire the people that would be necessary to do proper oversight. And again, right. I say, too bad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like your that means your business model is flawed. Yeah. Um, well, it means that your users are your product and you really don't care what happens to them. Right. Is what it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a good way to, it's a good way to phrase it. 
Well, thanks to everybody for uh, writing in uh, your thoughts here. We do appreciate it, of course. And uh, our email address is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to hear from you. Let's jump into our stories here, Joe. You want to kick things off for us? I do. My story comes from Maru Data, uh, and they have a posting on their website that I saw on LinkedIn, and I, unfortunately, I can't remember who put it on LinkedIn, but it's a pretty good post, hmm. and it's called A Guide to Dark Patterns, Terms and Examples from the CCPA and the CPA. Now, that's the California Consumer Protection Act ah. and the Colorado Privacy Act. Okay. So, these are two laws that have gone, that the California law has gone into effect. The Colorado law goes into effect this summer. On mm. July 1st, I believe. Okay. Uh, and these guys are uh, talking about how you're liable in dark patterns, for, for dark patterns. Now, okay. it's very interesting. We've talked about dark patterns on here yeah. before, uh, but this article cites two FTC artifacts, the first one being a report titled Bringing Dark Patterns to Light, where they actually define what dark patterns are. Okay. And it's a really good explanation of dark patterns in a formalized manner. It says, dark patterns coined in 2010 by user design specialist Harry Brignall, the term dark patterns has been used to describe design practices that trick or manipulate users into making choices they would not have otherwise made and may cause them harm. Mm. I'm going to read that last part again. I have it bolded here. Trick or manipulate users into making choices they would not otherwise have made and may cause them harm. Does that sound like anything to you? <laughs> it's, it's social engineering in a in a in software is what it is. Yeah. So uh, the report or this article goes on to quote Samuel Levine, who's the director the director of the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection, and he says this report and our cases send a clear message that these traps will not be tolerated. Hmm. And uh, there are a number of cases cited in this article about fines that have been levied. For example, the half a billion dollar fine that was put on Epic Games for their Fortnite dark patterns. Yeah. A 5 million euro and 60 million euro fine, respectively, imposed on TikTok and Facebook for their, uh, their dark patterns. And that was imposed by the French government. Mm. Uh, but this... This article goes on to talk about the definitions within these two laws. And in the California law, there's a number of things that they say. Number one, easy to understand language should be used. It should be simple and easy to comprehend. Mm, okay, right? sure. Uh, number two, and this one's really big, symmetry and choice. And if you look at the article, we'll put the link in the show notes uh, to both the article and the FTC uh, page. Mm -hmm. If you look at the... Uh, the article, it, con it contains the law, the language in the law. I'm not going to go around reading it because uh, I'm not, I just don't think it's helpful. But <laughs> uh, you can, you, if you think it would be, take a look at it. It should be easy and quick to exercise more privacy and protection as it is to ex exercise less privacy protection. Oh, okay. <laughs> right? That's the symmetry of choice piece. Yeah. I'm uh, just thinking about how hard it is to find the little tiny X in a pop-up menu. Yeah, you know, that's like a, a great pop-up head. Like, that's a great example, <laughs> especially on a mobile device. You know, I where have you're, looked you're, all over for your those big X's. fat fingers trying to find a little tiny X, and and in, invariably you end up clicking through to the ad that you were just trying to ignore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You get the impression, and they get the money. Yep. Yep. Confusing language should be avoided. Customers' choices should be clearly provided 
and double negatives should not be used. <laughs> right, right, right. If you don't not want to consider to continue getting this subscription. <laughs> right. And there's even, uh, uh, by the way, I was mistaken. These, these comments are not from the law. These are just comments that are written down mm. uh, underneath. And the next one, uh, number four here is the design architecture should not impair customers' ability to make choices. Consent should be given freely and specific. Hmm. Uh, freely given, specific, uninformed, and amb- unambiguous. That's mm-hmm. the way it should be. Uh, it should be easy to execute. This is the fifth point. And that refers to the process to submit a CCPA request that might be, it should be straightforward. I think last week we were talking to, uh, or maybe it was two weeks ago, we were talking to uh, our guest who was talking about uh, the hoops somebody had to jump through yeah. to, <laughs> to remove their remove their data. Right. And that company got slapped with a big fine. Yeah. And I said, good. <laughs> well, and remember, it just reminds me of, um, I want to say it was one of the big newspapers. It was either the New York Times or the Washington Post uh, who are making it incredibly difficult to cancel your subscription to the paper. Like you could sign up for a subscription online, but in order to cancel your subscription, you had to call. Yeah. I, I know the Wall Street was, Journal's like that. And I, I'm pretty, I, my, it's a vague recollection, but I think the FTC called foul on that and said, you can't have different mechanisms for joining something and leaving something. Right. It can't be significantly more burdensome to try to cancel your subscription than it is to join. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's a good, a good piece of regulation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the point of this article here that says, using dark patterns or practices as stated above to obtain consent is not considered as consent. Obtaining consent using dark patterns can be considered as having never obtained customer consent, which is great. Huh. Uh, it also goes on to talk about the Colorado Protection Act, which has a lot of the same provisions in the, uh, in, in the, the as the California law does. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that they add to the Colorado law is to avoid pre-selected options, right? Mm-hmm. So when you, when you say, I, I, I submit all my, all my data, you can't agree and you can't have the pre-selected option of go ahead and take everything and oh yeah yeah I'm going to sell my first kid to you right right yeah I remember I see used to see this a lot with um you know sign me up for your newsletter that right. would be pre-clicked <laughs> yeah yeah and that shouldn't be the case <laughs> right so right. it's a good article uh, posted on Maru Data's site uh, I like it I like it a lot we talk about dark patterns here these things are social engineering mm-hmm. in software form that's all it is and. Users need to be aware of it. Our listeners need to be aware of it. And I'm glad that there's some uh, regulation coming out about these. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I can't help wondering if somehow or sometime we're going to get to the point where the actual EULA, you know, the end user license agreement, <laughs> right, is somehow gets— English? Ref- Well, yeah, right. I mean, it, 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 can anybody argue that we don't need—now I'm using double, double negatives— uh, I think we need EULA reform. <laughs> right. Um, so, because they just hide so much in all the legalese and sure. nobody, the, everyone, it's, it's, a, it's a standard trope now that nobody can read. And of course nobody can read it. And right. no one, so. Well, that's the purpose of it, Dave. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so what I think is interesting in these laws is that um, they're saying that your communications have to be reasonable and clearly understandable. And I would argue that modern EULAs are the opposite of that. I would agree with you 100%. Right. So how does that play out as these states are making these regulations? Could someone make an argument that 
agreeing to the eula doesn't mean anything because of a, a eula is basically one big giant dark pattern. Yeah, um, that's a good point. There was a, um, I think it was in Make magazine a long time ago, mm-hmm. uh, an article about getting a print uh, T-shirt printed up that said, "By selling me." This product, you agree, and the manufacturer agrees that all Eulas are null and void. <laughs> and you okay. walk into you walk into Best Buy with this T-shirt on, and you buy some products, and then you walk out <laughs> with the products, <laughs> and you have null, nullified their. You, know, you could make the case that you've nullified their uh, their Eula. Right, Your Honor. Right, Your Honor. Right. <laughs> oh, I nullify their Eula yeah. by saying right. uh, all the- Eulas are null and void. Right. <laughs> It's the novelty T-shirt defense. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a good question for Ben. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I bet you. You know what? This uh, it's either well, it's probably simultaneously one of the most fun and frustrating parts of his job as a professor of law. You know that his students come up with these wacky scenarios, <laughs> what ifs, right? right? There's probably always that one student who just can't help themselves. And yeah, if I was ever go to his law school, that, that would be Maryland, you. That's, I'd be, that'd be me. That's right. 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 Just yeah, good, I mean, old, like, good old edge case Joe. Right. He's got another... Uh, <laughs> that's what my kids call me. Yeah. <laughs> got, a, got another edge case. Yeah. Yeah. Have you a t-shirt printed up for you that says, well, actually... Right. <laughs> All right. Well, interesting uh, stuff. So, as always, we'll have a link to, to that in the show notes. My story this week comes from Wired. Uh, mm-hmm. This is an article written by Laura Cole, uh, and it's called This is Catfishing on an Industrial Scale. Hmm. And it, it really pulls back the curtain and, and looks behind the scenes at some of these online dating sites uh, that are running scams. Um, let me describe what's going on here. So this article talks to some of the people who are working behind the scenes for these online dating sites. And these people are hired to be the person that you chat with if you sign up for one of these online dating sites. So some of these sites, not only do they try to, they give you the opportunity to connect with other people, but you can chat with other people. And evidently some of these sites charge per message for the chatting. Uh, I'm I'm not clear on this. Why are people getting paid to chart to chat with the users of a dating site? So let's say Joe, you want to log in and you're you want to you want to chat with somebody, right? Right. You're you're lonely. You're feeling isolated. Whatever it may be, you're in a bad mood. You just want to talk to somebody. Yep. So you can sign up for one of these apps and l- browse through a bunch of profiles. And you can find a person and say, ah, this looks like someone who has common interest with me. I believe I will chat with them. And this is a dating app. A dating app, right? yes. Okay. Uh, and so you proceed to chat with this person who you think is a real person, and you're paying per message to do so. Huh. So you sign up ahead of time, and let's just say for argument's sake, you give them 100 bucks, and every message exchanged costs you 25 cents. Right. Okay. And so the company makes money. The longer the conversation goes on, the more money they make. So they're highly incentivized to extend the conversations. So what this article points out is that behind the scenes— They're hiring people to do this. Exactly. I see. They're hiring people to role play (laughs) to pretend to be the person that you're chatting with. I get it now. Yeah. What a great scam. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd like to announce the opening of Joe's dating site. <laughs> yeah, there you go. 
um, where you can talk to Joe or Joanne or Josephine. Right. Or <laughs> <laughs> um, So they spoke with several of the folks who responded to uh, ads for freelance customer support representatives. That was the job they thought they were applying for. Right. And it turns out they would be on the other side of these kind of chat apps. Ugh. And what the company provides them with are full made-up profiles of these people. So who they are, how old they are, where they live, the, who their family is, where they work, right? And these are completely fabricated. Uh, synthetic personas. Right. And so these people's job is to rotate through two minutes at a time, evidently, uh, multiple people that they're chatting with. So these these folks who they call moderators, um, they are uh, expected to send 30 messages an hour. So think, do the math there, right? right. <laughs> 30 messages an hour, that's, uh, uh, it's like uh, $7 an hour for the, for the company. Yeah, and not all of them, you know, they, they pay... Um, what this article points out that there's one of these sites, the user pays two euros per message. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. So that's a lot more. Right. Now you're talking, uh, at 70, 70 messages an hour or 30 messages. 30, well, third, well, the, so the, the, the people behind the scenes are expected to send 30 messages an hour. They're trying to elicit the people to send. Correct. M- much more than that. But they're dealing with multiple people simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Right. They have multiple chat windows open that they're monitoring. This sounds an awful lot like a scam call center. It, that's a ding, 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 <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> that's exactly uh, what it seems as though this is. Um, now, the companies who are doing this, getting back to the EULA, right. <laughs> say in their EULAs, they say things like, we may use system profiles at our discretion to communicate with users to enhance our users' entertainment experience, right? Huh. So it's like, to them, they're framing it. It's like calling a psychic, Joe. It's just entertainment. Yeah, it's Miss Cleo. Right. Please don't plan your life around any of the things that we're telling you to do here. This is for entertainment purposes only. Now I'm more angry that you made that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> because, I don't know, those psychic hotlines really bug me. Sure. You know, because yeah. people, you know, it. I don't, I don't know. Penn and Teller had a great episode on psychics. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, sent Penn Jillette into a rage was when a woman, everything was fine and dandy up until a woman said, I need to know if my daughter's going to be okay. She's been diagnosed with something, uh, some sickness. And right. the psychic right. said, oh, the spirits are telling me that she's going to be fine. Yeah. And that enraged, and it enrages me. Sure. Right? Yeah. Because now you've gone beyond the uh, the entertainment value. Now you're giving right. somebody false hope about, or uh, hope about you, something you know nothing about. And something very specific. And something very specific, yeah. exactly. It's one thing, I think, to entertain someone by saying, oh, it looks like you're going to be lucky in love. Right. Something broad and general and, you know, although I still have a problem with it, but that, yes, that doesn't raise my hackles as much as, will my loved one live or die? Right, yeah, or psychic a, surgery. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. So know? getting back to this, um, one of the agents they interviewed said that when they came to 
their chat uh, interface, they received a new message one morning and it said, please stop talking to my husband. He is spending money we do not have to talk to you. Huh. And, of course, they had to pay for that chat. Yeah, two euros. Right. Um, And so these, (laughs) air quotes, relationships can go on for years. Uh, They talk about people who claim that they've fallen in love, not surprising, people who have proposed marriage. So the question is, is this just for entertainment purposes? Are these companies off the hook for if they say if they say in their eula right right we're not we're not responsible for the pain and suffering our service may cause <laughs> the you pain and suffering we cause <laughs> yeah all, all pain and suffering is purely the responsibility of the person who's paying for for paying for the pain and suffering yeah i don't this is first off this is i think the the when i see a lot of headlines i get you know they're often written by editors yeah this is an accurate headline it says catfishing at an industrial scale. Yeah. That's what's going on. Right. And they're making tons of money doing this. Definitely unethical. I mean, right. and you hide you hide the little uh, little statement in the in the EULA that nobody reads as we've said 100 times on this show mm-hmm. today and 1000 times before. It's infuriating, Dave. What what do people do to protect themselves against this? I mean, is are companies like Match companies like Match.com are not doing this and, and eHarmony, all the one all the big ones, right? Yeah. They're not doing this. Let me let I me hope. throw let me throw a little bit of a kicker at you here. Okay. So the, the final paragraph in this article says talk, is in this is one of the the chat people who work for the company talks about how someone they were talking to was sharing their heaviest emotional concerns and oh. says one was talking about suicide. And how the fake woman had saved him from it now that he had found love. Oh my God. So the love you... so but but so let's unpack this. Yeah. So the love is not real. Right. But this person is claiming or expressing that were it not for this conversation, they may have ended their life. Yeah. So is this a good thing? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yes, it's a good thing the person did not kill themselves. Yeah. That's good. Right. That's a good outcome. Right. Uh, but what happens when this guy finds out he's been played? Right. Right? Back. Yeah, exactly. What's the rebound from that? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I do if I'm that if I'm that caller and I have, well, first off, I, I would I would hope that I would never do this. Mm-hmm. But if I'm the, the, the catfisher on the other end, the first thing I do is go, look, man, uh, we need we need to get you some some help here that needs to happen. <laughs> That's delightfully ethical of you, Joe. Right. Delightfully <laughs> ethical of me. I, I don't know that I tell him it's all a scam at right. that point in time because now I have now I'm in a conundrum. Now I'm in a, a dilemma, right? Sure. I, I've scammed this guy into thinking that we have a relationship. Mm-hmm. But I've also saved him from from ending his own life. But now I have to do something to make that okay. Yeah. Right. To, to because I can't just go <laughs> jokes on you. Mm-hmm. Right. Because there's a good chance that will end up with the outcome that I I think I may have prevented. Right. You know. Yeah. Uh, and so, is there an ethical responsibility to pull back the curtain at some point? I, the ethical responsibility to pull back the curtain is at the beginning of the conversation, <laughs> but they're not doing that. Yeah. So if let's say there was a company that did this completely on the up and up and just said, hey. This is all a fantasy. These people are not real, but this is what you're going to get. 
You're going to pay for talking to people who pretend to be exactly the person that you're looking for. Right. And that's what we're doing here. Like that I wouldn't have a problem with. That's coming though, Dave. And that's going to be powered by these, these generative chat programs. I, I, I agree. I agree. And in fact, I've already seen years ago, a couple of years ago, my wife and I were watching, I think, I don't know if it was a Netflix documentary or some other show, but they were talking about people who had their best friends were AI language models. Yes. Uh, and yes, they were saying their best friends were AI language models. They, uh, well, remember, this is uh, years ago. We talked about um, there was a mother who was describing how her child who had some— Who was autistic. Yeah, he had, and he had some pretty, uh, you know, severe learning disabilities or uh, abilities to interact with other people. And this was the Siri story, right? Correct. Yeah. And so Siri had become a great resource for this uh, young person because Siri had endless patience right. and was willing to— interact and, and answer all of their questions. There are definite use cases for that that are beneficial like that Siri case. And I would imagine that generative models will be great for kids and adults like, like this, like this kid in this story. Yeah. And there are a lot of them out there. Yeah. Um, you know, I haven't involved myself with any of these generative, uh, chat bots mm-hmm. yet. Um, I, I don't know why I haven't, but I just haven't. Okay. I haven't taken the time to sit down and, and talk to one of them. Yeah. Uh, but I could absolutely see if there was a speech interface to one of these things, uh, that that would be a real beneficial use case for, and maybe not just people with, uh, with social disorders or autism or something like that. Maybe yeah. just general use. But the point is that has to be done up front. Right. It has to be. It has to be ethical. It has to. It, the ethics require that that has to be. You have to know that. You have to mm-hmm. know that going in. Right. What these companies are doing is, I would say, goes beyond unethical and goes into immoral. Mm. It, mm-hmm. This is wrong. They mm-hmm. shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. And now they're finding themselves into into uh, into situations like the one we talked about with the guy who is who uh, has been talked out of killing himself by somebody, right. and now they've created a dilemma because of their their failings on this scale. Yeah, and I wonder too like you know for your from your story could this sort of thing run afoul of regulations in California, regulations in Colorado? It may. That's an excellent question. That yeah. is an, that is an excellent question. That would be a good question to ask a lawyer in California or Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um because I think your statement earlier about Eula's essentially just being nothing more than a huge linguistic dark pattern. Right. Right. I think that's valid. Mm-hmm. I've seen a couple of companies who have had, who have straightforward plain English EULAs. Uh, like they had the legalese and above it in bold, they say, here's what it says. I've only seen like one or two of those. Not well, a lot of people are doing that. So, yeah, you're a homeowner. I am. As am I. Yep. Uh Remember settlement day? Oh God! <laughs> I've refinanced twice, Dave. Right. So, <laughs> how does this extend to that? Right. I mean, you. It, there are situations in our lives. I'd say buying a car is another one where right. you put placed in front of you are pages and pages and pages of legalese. Yes. That mere mortals cannot be expected to understand. Well, do you remember who you talked to when you were signing these documents at, at the purchase of your home? Right. It well, was you a have title a title company with an attorney. 
Right. And they're explaining to you what you're doing. Yes. And hopefully you have a, another representative in, the, in, a, in a realtor right. that is a buyer's <laughs> agent. Right. Representing your interest and not the seller's interest. Yeah. I was fortunate enough because my father, before he retired, was in was a fact realtor. a realtor. I spent time as a realtor as well. And so when we, I specifically remember the, on the first home my wife and I settled on, we're sitting at the settlement table and the, the uh, settlement officer would explain, this is what you're signing. This is what this means. This is what this is for. And I would look over at my father and my father would nod. Uh, yep. And then I'd sign. <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> But you're right. You got you got to have people in their corner, and you know, as um, uh, Ben and other lawyers joke, you know, everybody hates lawyers until they need one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we we've recently had to engage the services of a lawyer in our house. Yeah. And uh, even still, I don't like them. <laughs> Fair enough. I like Ben though. Ben's great. <laughs> right. Okay. Ben's the exception. He's no, the actually, I have I have friends that are lawyers. And, yeah. And I, I like them. Uh, I try not to talk legal questions, but I have I have pestered Ben on the weekends. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> All right. Well, again, this article is from Wired, uh, written by Laura Cole. It's titled "This Is Catfishing on an Industrial Scale." Interesting read, worth your time. We'll have a uh, link to that in the show notes. Joe, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Gareth, who writes, Hi, Dave and Joe, long-time listener, never miss an episode. That's great, Gareth. Uh, an interesting fish arrived in my junk. At least it didn't land in my actual inbox. Dave, this one's pretty good. All right, it says, so the subject is, Hello, your kind attention. And then it starts off and it says, Hello, your kind attention. My name is Morgan Adamski from Internet Fraud Intelligence National Security Agency. <laughs> we are commissioned to eradicate all incidents of criminal activities that is associated with Internet cyber fraud against their victims. We partner with other crime control security agencies, international law enforcement agencies, such as the International Monetary Agency, Central Intelligence Agency, the FBI, and the U.S. Secret Service to share intelligence and coordinate action. An ongoing investigation led to the reason you are being contacted, and we do appreciate your time going through this important notification and information. Some imposters are currently under investigation and interrogation in our custody for Internet fraud-related charges, especially cases of demand of fees repeatedly from their prey. However, your email happened to be on their list as a target— to enable us gather more evidence before swinging into action. <laughs> like Spider-Man. Right. <laughs> I need to ask you some couple of questions if you don't mind. One, have you at any point in time been scanned? Option A, yes. B, no answer. Two, did you ever file complaint to any authority? Option A, yes. B, no answer. Joe, this feels like a, like a note you would pass in middle school it does, class. It? Like, That's do, a good point. do you love me? A, yes. B, no. <laughs> check, check yes or <laughs> right. no. Will you be my friend? Uh, three, what is the average amount you were scammed? Option A, five to ten thousand dollars. B, ten to fifty thousand dollars. C, fifty to one hundred fifty thousand dollars. D, one hundred fifty thousand and above. E, none. Answer four. How were you scammed? Option A, romance scam. B, business email compromise. C, business proposal, inheritance, beneficiary, lottery. D, none answer. 
If you are asked or you are presently asked to send fees continuously, oh, it says fess, right. they misspelled fees. <laughs> if you are asked or you are presently asked to send fess continuously, kindly forward to us the email correspondence and documents for which those demands for fees was stated. We are here to dismiss any form of unofficial administrative fees imposed on beneficiary to deny them of civil right of possession. Thank you for your cooperation as we await your earliest response. Morgan Adamski, Assistant Director, Internet Fraud Intelligence, National Security Agency. <laughs> so Garth notes that this looks like it might be looking for people who were previously scammed to do some follow-on scams. Right, exactly. That's, that's exactly what this is. Yeah. So you were scammed for 150 grand? Oh, we're going to follow up with you. <laughs> right, exactly. Ooh, it's payday. Right. It's um, like pre-qualifying the, the folks that you're going to scam. That is exactly what they're doing here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's laughable to us because, Dave, we live very close to the National Security <laughs> Agency headquarters. Yes, I would say in the shadow of in, the National Security yeah. Agency. Well, the whole—well, I'm not going to say it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the the Internet Fraud Intelligence National Security Agency, I don't know that that exists. I don't think it does. Um, my yeah. favorite thing is they, uh, they, they say the IMF, which is the International Monetary Agency. Right. Not— the, what with the IMF is International Monetary Fund. Yes. They are a lending organization. They do not do law enforcement. Correct. Um, <laughs> they talk about international law enforcement agencies, of which the Central Intelligence and the FBI are, are I guess they do say, and the U.S. But yeah. those are not internet. So many things in here that just stick out as red flags. Mm-hmm. Uh, the unfortunate part is somebody does fall for this. Somebody does go, hey, these guys are here to help me. And right. what's going to happen is they're going to get scammed out of more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's sad. It is. All right. Well, thanks to Gareth for sending that in. Again, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of chatting with Nick Percoco. He is the CEO at Kraken. Uh, and we we're talking about crypto scams. Here's our conversation. So I think when, when I hear and I think about crypto scams, I don't think of them as very much different than your traditional scams, but they happen to just use cryptocurrency rather than other things of value. But in general, um, what typically happens is that you have a a victim or a per, you know, just a re- regular person um, who has some interest in either increasing their their net worth, right? They have they want to increase the amount of money that they have in their pocket, and they're very eager to, and they somehow get introduced via dozens and dozens of different ways to someone out there that's willing to try to help them do that, but in a way that will eventually steal all of their money. Um, or all the money that they put into this um, into this situation. So, so that's like the basic premise around it. Like a real world example would be a investment website that looks very well designed, very well you know, put together. It doesn't look like it's got some issues. There's not typos everywhere. It it looks completely legit, and it might be called, you know, next century, you know cryptocapital.com or something, just making up some name, right? Mm. Um, might be called, and it looks legit, um, has a legit 
executive team that, you know, at least to the victim looks very legit, you know, photos, maybe even LinkedIn profiles. Right. And, um, and it asks the victim to create an account with them. And when they create an account with them, it then asks them to create accounts with other, pla- other places, like other financial institutions, like a cryptocurrency exchange, like, like, like Kraken. Um, and the victim goes and legitimately creates an account with us, um, you know, verifies their account, connects their account to their bank account, and funds it with, you know, $5,000, dollars $50,000, and then is convinced by this investment company to, to either buy some cryptocurrency, so purchase some Bitcoin or Ethereum or Monero or something, and go and then send it to this investment company because they are now going to further invest it for them. They are going to manage it for them, just like you would with any other traditional investment company. Right? Like you go to a, a wealth management company and they say, okay, we're going to create an account for you. You now need to wire some funds from your bank account to us. And then they're going to man- quote, manage it for you. Very, very similar. And so the victim has really no, no idea that this, at this point that this is a scam. They then go and they send those funds to that, that investment firm. And, and, and that's typically, they might play them along for a little bit, but eventually maybe that investment firm just disappears off the face of the earth. Like the website mm-hmm. just disappears. <laughs> um, and once they've maybe scammed enough people and pull, you know, collected enough funds, they just basically hit, pull the, pull the ripcord and, you know, the domain, the site, everything just disappears. Um, and now you have, you have people who have invested in this company using cryptocurrency, but they, they could have, you know, wired these funds to them or they could have, you know, PayPal'd the funds to them, uh, you know, traditional funds to them. But it happens to be that they use cryptocurrency because they're promising those victims a very large return. Like something that maybe seem, would seem unbelievable when you're dealing with, you know, U.S. dollars. Um, they're, they're telling them that they're going to 200x or 300x their money. Um, but in crypto, people have seen that, right? People have seen that they've, some people have bought or bought multiple $5,000 worth of a, with a crypto asset, and it has gone up five times, 10 times, 100 times over the course of time. Um, and so, so the victims play along with that. You know, they, they think they're going to get this massive return, and instead they, get, they lose their, their investment. I, I, I hesitate to use the, the term because I don't want it to sound disparaging, but are they taking advantage of, of unsophisticated or, or um, inexperienced investors? Oh, all the time. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's who they prey on. I, I would say these are not experienced investors. These are not people who, who, who have maybe you know, a very large portfolio of assets that they, they manage and they do, they do a lot of research before they invest into. Um, it's not that population. From what we see in our world, it, it's, it's in general people who are, who are you know, like over, the, over 55 years old um, who fall victim to this um, in general. Um, I would say there's, there's a whole spectrum of victims, right, from probably very young to very old. But I would say, you know, if you were to throw a heat map up there, the heat map would probably be in the 55 and older category. Hmm. Um, and so potentially those, those individuals have a small nest egg, right, that they've saved for, for a very long time. And um, now they see a promise of, you know, 20xing their money through this investment company that they just found via Google search or, or, um, or a friend who's also a victim of the same investment company said, you know, told them, hey, you should send your money to this person because they're going to 20x my money, right? It's, it's one of those things. Mm-hmm. 
Now, from your point of view, you and your colleagues there at Kraken, what sort of visibility do you have into this sort of thing? In many cases, we hear about um, about these scams. Um, in many cases, after the fact, um, because from our point of view, if you think of you going to any traditional financial firm, right, like or even a cryptocurrency exchange like us, you know, you go through a process of opening an account. You, know, you pick a username, you have a password, you fill in your your identifiable information, you KYC, you provide your identity documentation, you, know, you KYC your your account. It goes through an approval process. And then now you have, you have an activated account and then you legitimately go and you connect it to your bank account and you start, you know, buying cryptocurrency. That type of activity looks exactly the same thousands of times a day within our client base. And it's typically not until after the fact um, that we hear, Hey, you know, I, I sent my, my, I, I bought some Bitcoin and then I sent all of that Bitcoin to this other person out there. Um, and, and then they disappeared. And so we will hear about that. We do track when those types of things happen. And we also you know, communicate with, with other, other people in the industry to identify other, other things that are out there before we learn about them on our platform. So we can proactively do things like you know, flag scammer you know, cryptocurrency addresses so that, so that we can intercept when those funds are going um, to that scammer and, and put a hold on them. And so that we can do an investigation, reach out to that person, why are you sending, you know, why did you create an account you know, last week, fund it with $50,000, buy $50,000 worth of Bitcoin, and now we're immediately sending it to an address that we've heard through you know, our, our intelligence and, and have seen is, is linked to scammers. Um, do you know the people you're sending this to? Do you, know the, do you know the organization? How much research did you do on this organization? Um, and, and oftentimes we're able to intercept that and, and, and stop a victim from being, being scammed. Oh, that's great to hear. I, I did not uh, know that there was that sort of uh, you know, oversight to, to help uh, assist your customers. You know, you hear about things, you know, like um, we hear about gift card scams and, and it seems as though, you know, the, the drug stores, the grocery stores, you know, they've done things even as simple as putting up signage and uh, things at the checkouts and educating their, their cashiers to try to uh, get in the middle of these sorts of things. So it's, it's heartening to hear that, uh, in the exchange world that you all are, are coming at this as well. Yeah, we, we do a great deal of education. We have a lot of information about these things on our, our support our, our support center. Um, we also um, do videos for our clients about you know how to how to look out for scams. And then we have you know we have a we have a whole team internally you know looks for things like fraud, account takeovers and scams um, on our on our exchange um, and it intercepts that. Once the cryptocurrency is gone, is it gone? Is, is, there, is there any ability to claw it back? Depending on where it goes. Um, now, I would say um, majority of the time, it's gone, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the nature of, of crypto, right? That's the nature right. of, when you think of the ease of use and sort of the, the whole premise around Bitcoin is that you know, it's permissionless. You don't have to go through a third party, be able to send it between two parties, and, um, and you can't claw it back. Um, so you, I couldn't send you a Bitcoin, um, get a product from you, and then decide, you know, I'm going to do a chargeback on, on, on the Bitcoin I sent you. Um, I can't do that to you as, a, as an exchange of, you know, of value there. But that being said, some, some scammers, you know, there's, there's a different level of sophistication. If a hmm. scammer is giving the victim an address that is, it is tied to like a hardware wallet or a software wallet that is not... Part of any sort of centralized exchange, then it's probably 
gone. Um, um, but that address, if it's a significant amount of, of funds, you know, that, that address will get, get flagged by us, um, potentially by other exchanges that, um, so that if funds ever come in to the exchange from that address, um, from that wallet, that those funds would get flagged and held. Um, and so, so it, it, this does happen from time to time where a victim will have their funds, you know, the funds will get sent to some, you know, attacker's wallet. Um, the attacker, you know, will record that, that wallet address um, in our systems. That same attacker will maybe have a Kraken account um, and they'll, they'll send the funds to Kraken again. You know, at that point, it's, it's not, not, a, not a good thing from attacker's perspective and it's a good day for the, for the victim. Now, it also could be that the funds, you know, go directly to a, another exchange. In that case, um, we will reach out to the other exchange and say, hey, we have a victim here that sent five Bitcoin to your exchange, to this wallet address. And it doesn't happen all the time, right? It's like sometimes it's you know, the world of crypto moves much faster than humans can in many cases. So, right. um, but it has happened where the other exchange have said, hey, we see them, we, we're holding the funds. And then we can, you know, then the victim, ha- they don't just send the funds back immediately, right? It's, it's not really what happens, but then the victim can open up a law enforcement um, case um, and, you know, eventually, 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 get their funds back right hmm. yeah in terms of, of education you know the the message to spread you know, for our audience just in terms of awareness and the red flags that are out there uh any words of wisdom there yeah i mean in general if the if the opportunity seems too good to be true it usually is i think in every situation right in any sort of scam the other piece is if the scammer is asking you, to, or not scammer, if the, if the company you're dealing with or the people you're dealing with are asking you for things like, create an account on this exchange and then give us the username and password and we're going to manage it for you. That's definitely a red flag. So it's, if, they're, if they're providing you with any sort of sense of urgency, like you need to do it by Friday, you're going you're gonna to lose out on this deal, right? The, you know, this fund's going to close. If you don't get it in by, if they're giving you that type of, type of message as well, it's usually some red flags. Um, that they can trigger. So it's a lot of, and the other piece is you just need to be very careful because these investment sites are, you know, they pop up, you know, they can pop, there could be a dozen a month that pop up um, more or more. And they, they may be by the same groups, right? They have, they have like a toolkit that says we need a new site. They type in the name of the site and a new site gets spun up, right? Automatically. It's not as mm. if they spend you know, weeks and months establishing this really great, robust site they most likely have these things automated. We've seen trends where these, you know, one site gets taken down and then a very similar site comes back up. New domain name, um, but similar, similar look and feel. Joe, what do you think? You and I were talking about Kraken, uh, I think last week, maybe it was on a CyberWire segment. Yeah, it was. We were talking about uh, Kit Doba, the, the, the uh, scam baiter on YouTube. Right. Which, by the way, you should check him out. Uh, he's really good. Very funny. Uh, but Kraken actually went through the process of setting him up an entirely fake interface that he used to, uh, to waste scammer time. Right. And right. it was great. Yeah. Uh, crypto scams are the same as regular scams. That's one of, the, one of the points that Nick makes here. And they're just using cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. which is kind of one of the things that we said. In fact, uh, Dr. Tim Leschke, who is our forensic instructor at Hopkins, hmm. uh, he, 
he makes a great point when he's talking very early on in his forensic class. He says that the internet doesn't create new crimes. It just provides a new way to commit old crimes. Mm, mm-hmm. And that's what's going on here. Mm-hmm. There's, not, um, there's not a lot that's new under the sun, really. The internet's new, but the scams are not. Yeah. The same old scams. We even had a couple of years ago, I went back and did a bunch of scams that were just old, uh, you know, the old, the old timey scams, you know? Right. Uh, and we, we, you know, and, and you can see the similarities between those scams and the current scams that are going on now. Right. They're the same thing. Yeah. They work. The workflow that Nick describes is pretty interesting yeah. for, uh, for how these scammers work. First off, they create, uh, they create a fake a fake website for some kind of crypto exchange or something. Mm-hmm. And then once they hook a victim, they the victim creates an account on the fake site. Then they go create a legitimate account with a legit exchange like Kraken. Kraken's a real crypto exchange. Right. Uh, they could also use like Coinbase or some other some other real cryptocurrency exchange out there. Yeah. Uh, then they link some bank account to that legit account because when you when you open an account with Kraken or with Coinbase or anybody. You have to fund that account somehow. Now, you can fund it with cryptocurrency that you already have, but if you don't have any cryptocurrency, you can do a bank transfer. Right. And uh, that bank transfer then can be used to buy cryptocurrency on this legitimate exchange. So you fund the, they, they have you fund the legitimate account. Oh, and the other point I wanted to make is you can't, you probably can't do that. It's probably necessary to use these legitimate exchanges because the illegitimate company is not going to go through the uh, the necessary regulatory and 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 uh, process or whatever the legal process is for having banks able to wire them money. Right. Because then they have to disclose all their information, like who they are, where they are, what their names are. Probably going to meet with somebody. Yeah. Don't want to do that. Right. So we we exploit companies like Kraken to uh, to get people to send us money, and they get them to fund the legit account, put money put that money into the cryptocurrency and then send that money to the fake company. That's like a six-step process they walk somebody through. <laughs> right, right. It's a long process. Yeah. Um, and and frankly, I'm kind of, I don't want to say I'm amazed it works, but it's, it's a, it, I, it's a long, I'm observing that it's a long process. Yeah. I, I don't know what I want to say about that beyond that. Well, it must be worth it or they wouldn't do it. Right. I'm sure, oh yeah. The return on it. the investment. I guarantee it's worth it. Is worth it. But you're right. There's a lot of steps. Right. Uh, this relies on the belief that some of these scammers are going to make you rich. Uh, and I'm, I was really interested to hear, I like what Nick said about their way they exit. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes they start showing you, uh, oh, look how much money you're making. And we've had stories on uh, pig butchering scams where they actually send you money back. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. maybe these guys are doing some of that. I don't mm-hmm. know if they are. But eventually they just exit. They're gone. Yeah. And it's interesting to see that soon after they're gone, sometimes they're back. Right, mm. and that's what we'll get. I'm going to get into more of that in a minute. Uh, one of the things this works with crypto, a cryptocurrency rather, is that people have seen people make tons of money in cryptocurrency. Right. I mean, do you remember when Bitcoin was 25 cents a, a Bitcoin? Uh, I mean, I remember the early days of it. I can't say that I paid a whole lot of attention to it in the I early days. I was intrigued by it. I've, and I said, I've certainly I heard Bitcoin the stories. For 25 cents, and I think I'd just be throwing away a quarter. Right. Right. Stupid. But it turns out that was stupid. <laughs> but, uh, you know, who knew back then? And when it was four bucks, I'm like, uh, I should have bought some when it was a quarter. Uh, and now I'm really wishing I bought some when it was $600. Right. But, <laughs> um, 
it, it, so people have seen this happen and they're kind of inexperienced with A, investing and, and B, cryptocurrencies. They don't mm-hmm. understand how cryptocurrencies work, uh, which is uh, something you should absolutely understand about every single investment you make. You should understand how it works. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're buying cryptocurrency, if you're buying an exchange-traded fund, a stock, a mutual fund, uh, a, a CD. Well, no, know yes, how that works. Yes, and I will. I will push back a little bit on that and say that I think um, part of what a lot of people rely on is having a financial advisor, right? Who you pay to understand this stuff for you and to explain it and 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 that sort of thing. So. What, but what that um, relies on is that your financial advisor is a legit person who right. you know, has the proper licenses and, yep. and all that and stuff. If, if you're going to go with a financial advisor, one of the questions you should always ask them is, are they a fiduciary? Yeah. Uh, so in this case, the people think that they're dealing with someone they trust, someone right. who's like a financial advisor, yep. but they're a scammer. That's right. Yeah. And they could even, that scammer will tell you, yeah, I'm a fiduciary. I have to look out for your best interest. They don't care. They'll lie. They'll tell you whatever they need to tell you. Right. Um, I like, one of the things that Nick touches on is this can spread like a virus between people. It, you know, somebody could say, hey, man, I'm making all this money on this, on this cryptocurrency deal. Why don't mm-hmm. you get involved? Mm-hmm. Next person's in. Um, there's, a, there's not a lot that, that companies like Kraken can do once that cryptocurrency has been sent into a wallet that they don't control. Uh, basically, once it's gone, it's gone. Now, they can ID a scammer address. Mm-hmm. And if the scammer tries to reuse that address, they can say, no, no, we know that's a scammer address. You're not sending your cryptocurrency there. Mm-hmm. Because Kraken does have an obligation to its customers yeah. uh, to, to protect them to the best of their ability. Uh, now, if you get a new wallet address that's a scammer address, there's really not much they can do about that. They don't know it's a scammer address. They can put it into the database of scammer addresses. But all the, data, all the uh, scammer has to do is create a new address. Yeah. And those are free on the Bitcoin network. You can do that on every cryptocurrency network. Um, I, I find it interesting that some of these scammers are using crypto exchanges, legit crypto exchanges, like sending the money back to Kraken. I mean, mm-hmm. if you tell somebody to open a, a Kraken account and then you scam that person out of uh, some Bitcoin and you just have them send it to your Kraken account. Right. <laughs> So I'm imagining somebody walking into a bank and and sticking up the bank and, right. and uh, robbing the teller and then immediately walking to the teller right next to that teller and saying, hi, I'd like to open a new account. <laughs> right. I'd like to make a deposit <laughs> to my account, right. please. Right. Exactly. That's exactly the same thing that's going on here. Right. Um, I will say this. These guys are, um, are going to stay in this game because this game is profitable. Yeah, you know, they're they're scamming people out of money. Uh, they're finding a way to to move that money around. Uh, it's there are companies out there that make a lot of money or that that do uh, tracking of these uh, of these cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. and the blockchains. But if you get that, if you if you put that cryptocurrency into a privacy pre- preserving cryptocurrency like uh, Monero or Zcash or Bitcoin Z, uh, then it's going to be very difficult to track it. Yeah, although I I will say that um, you know law enforcement has certainly claimed that their ability to track is greater than what most people think it is. Hmm. Yeah, I would I would like to know more about that. Yeah, uh, and that's good, probably good. You know, uh, because people getting scammed out of cryptocurrency is not um, not good. But and it's also I don't know that gives me privacy concerns as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's, I think we're on a pathway of more regulation when it comes to cryptocurrency exchanges. I mean, we just, I just, in fact, just this morning, I was reading that the the EU is going to be cracking down and and saying that uh, um, the exchanges are responsible to their users for the losses that that happen on the exchanges. Mm. Um, and I, there's been a lot of noise about. Um, uh, you know, what do we consider exchanges to be? Are they um, are they financial institutions or are they more like a sports betting organization? Is yeah. it gambling? Is yeah, it, that's a good question. Is it a bank or is it a casino? I don't think it's a casino, but I also don't think it's a bank. Yeah. Um, and, and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. If somebody sends their cryptocurrency from an exchange to a scammer, and it's the first time that's happened. I don't know how you make the how you make the exchange liable for it, aside from just saying, "Well, you're liable for it." And yeah, well, it's like credit cards, right? I mean, yeah, you're you're limited on you're limited on the your liability. liability. And I think it's that's they're saying it's going to be a similar kind of thing, right? Yeah, but that means that now every single one of those exchanges, every single one of those transfers is going to have to be monitored. And then to get around that, all the scammers have to do is say, now you need to set up a, a wallet on your home computer and send your cryptocurrency to your home wallet. And when you're transferring your money out of the exchange, just say you're transferring it to your home wallet, yeah. which is true. And then from your home wallet, you transfer it to the scammers. Okay. So that's how they're going to get around that. <laughs> I don't know that it's going to be helpful is what right, I'm saying. Right. All right. Well, again, our thanks to uh, Nick Prococo from Kraken for joining us. That's a good interview. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, we do appreciate him taking the time. Really uh, interesting insights there. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at harborlabs.com and isi.jhu.edu. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like Hacking Humans are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.